You can turn with me again to John 14. John 14. Uh, thank you for those who are praying for junior camp. It was an excellent week. Uh, it was just wonderful to see the Lord at work through his word uh, through junior camp. Uh, some of you know that um, my mom's mom, so I call her Grammy, uh, Grammy took a fall in the last week and was in the hospital, and I was intending to go out at some point this year briefly to see her, so I went, in, went ahead and did that. Uh, over Thursday to Saturday, I was out in Boston briefly, had a great visit with her. There's several reasons to be encouraged, but also several reasons to be concerned. We don't know what the Lord has, but uh, it was good to, to visit with her and my Grampy. They are 94 and 92. So I got to see people that were married 72 years, struggle to lean up and struggle to lean over to give each other a kiss in the hospital. It was just the sweetest thing. Uh, so thank you for those who are praying. And then I had opportunity to stop in Ann Arbor on the way back yesterday and see Ben and Becca and Ben is doing great. Uh, do continue to pray for, uh, his blood pressure that that would level out so that hopefully he can go home tomorrow and that that would just be predictable as he continues a long recovery from open heart surgery. But thank you for your prayers. Excited to be with you and to continue looking at John 14. Let me pray briefly and then we'll look at this passage together, beginning of verse 8 all the way down to verse 14. Let's pray one more time. Father God, we do ask now that you would speak to us through your word. You'd help us to, to see truth and 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 rejoice and, and be in awe of what we see. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you found, I have, that what you need and what you think you need are two different things? And I can see this play out in all sorts of ways. Uh, sometimes I think I need food and I really just need to drink some water. Have you ever found that where you'll eat when really you just need to drink something? I have, a, I have one child that's particularly this way. They'll say they're hungry and really it's like, just go have a glass of water. You'll be fine. You know. Maybe you think you need a vacation, but really you just need to learn to say no to things. Or you think you need less stress, but you really need to live more prayerfully. Or maybe you think you need some new spiritual experience that seems elusive, but really you need to trust God's provision for you already in Christ. We often confuse what we need with what we really need. What we think we need and what we really need are actually two different things. The disciples are a lot like us. Philip thought he knew what he needed. And what he really needed was something different yet. So look back at verse 7 from, from last week. So Philip heard Jesus say, from now on, you do know the Father and have seen the Father. And he latches on on those last few words, and have seen the Father. And he thought, that's what I need. I, I need to see the Father. We, disciples, we need a revelation. We need to know and see what Moses saw. Right? Remember Moses? Moses said to the Lord, Please show me your glory. That's what he that's what he thinks he needs. Remember what Isaiah saw in the year that King Uzziah died? Philip's like, that's what we need. You mentioned see the father. That's what we want to see the father. What a what a good desire. So look down in verse eight. Philip here sounds a lot like Moses. Maybe he had him in mind. He says, Lord, show us the father. And it is enough for us. 
He thought he needed a fresh vision of the Father, a fresh perspective, we might say. Seems like he was asking for some sort of a direct revelation. He thought, okay, if, if I and we, us disciples, if we could only see the Father, it would be enough. We would be satisfied then. That, that would be good. I could, you know, I could, I could die happy, so to speak, right? If only. It's a good desire, right, to see God. All true believers, if you're a believer, you have that desire to some degree, right? You want to see the Father. But Philip missed the mark too, right? Because Jesus had already taught them that that's not possible. Back in chapter 1, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's hand, he has made him known. Any, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father, chapter 6 of John. So Jesus then comes alongside Philip and he gives, he gives a little correction. He gives a, a gentle rebuke. He asks him a few questions to kind of draw him out, we might say. Philip's, Jesus' response to Philip is to someone who thought he knew what he really needed. And his response is, is to us. It's so interesting, Jesus here is providing comfort. Look back at 14.1. Remember, that's the, the tone, that's the context. Let not your hearts be troubled. He's providing comfort. And, and yet, in order to provide that comfort, Jesus speaks to his disciples hours before the cross, and he teaches them doctrine, deep doctrine, like some of the mysteries of the Trinity. He says, that's, that's what you need. You think you need a fresh revelation, and, and really, this is what you need. There's some certain things you need to grasp. And this is a, a simple passage, but it's a really deep passage. I want to help us hold a few things together. So we're going to have four points. Each point is going to hold two things together, and then they form a chain. All right? So four points, each holding two things together, and then they'll, they'll, form, they'll form a chain. These are what Jesus says we really need. We really need to know these, these truths. So if you can write down the points, I think it will help you hold the passage together and help you understand Jesus' somewhat challenging teaching in these verses. First... A unity that reveals the Father. So a unity between Jesus, the Son, and the Father. A unity that reveals the Father. So I mentioned Jesus' gentle rebuke. You see it there in verse 9. He begins by asking him a few questions. First, Jesus focuses in on time, right? He has been with the disciples for not, not a few months, not a few weeks, but for, for years Philip has had all sorts. He's had a long opportunity to grow. He's had more than enough time to really get to know Jesus. How, how many of us would need to line up in that line, right? Number of sermons we've heard, number of lessons we've, we've heard, or even taught ourselves. What, what opportunity we've had to get to know Jesus. Philip has had a similar opportunity. And then Jesus, after asking this question, have I not been with you so long and you still not not know me? He goes back to the truth that Philip missed in verse 7. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Simply put, Jesus reveals the Father. 
So if you ask to see the Father, and if you, like Philip, have seen Christ, you don't get it. Whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Look there in verse 9. So then he can ask, how can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Then in verse 10, Jesus gets to the underlying truth. This unity. This is what is true and this is what you need to believe. This is the foundational truth to this little conversation. You see it there in verse 10. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. This is what theologians call mutual indwelling. We could just call it unity. This beautiful unity between the Father and the Son. Since there is this unity and it's true, the Father is revealed everywhere and every time that Jesus is seen. So this would be Jesus's logic, if I could kind of paraphrase. He would say, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Therefore, whoever has seen the Father has seen me. Right? Except for the therefore. I was just quoting this passage, just kind of putting it together, right? So there's a unity here. And yet, we as disciples in our day, just like the disciples in Jesus' day, are slow to get this. To slow to get Jesus' mission, which is to reveal the Father. This is how Matthew Henry put it. All that saw Christ in the flesh might have seen the Father in him if Satan had not blinded their minds and kept them from a sight of Christ as the image of God, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. And then he says, all that saw Christ by faith did see the Father in him, though they weren't suddenly aware that they had seen it. And that's us, right? So we've got to grow in our awareness of this unity between the Father and the Son. So knowing Christ, we know the Father. Seeing Christ, we see the Father. Learning the ways of Christ, we learn the ways of the Father. There is one God, not three. Not three gods with the, maybe the Father being the hardest to get to know. No, 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 no. One God who exists in three persons and the Father and the Son, two distinct persons, yet one being, one God. Some of the mystery of the Trinity is where Jesus points. So Philip longed to see the Father like Moses, yet, let this sink in. Matthew Henry again. In Christ, we behold more of the glory of God than Moses did at Mount Horeb. In Christ, we behold more of the glory of God, not less, than the visions of God in the Old Testament. More glory than Moses. More glory, we could say, even than Isaiah. So when you desire to know God the Father... May you and I look with eyes of faith to God the Son. Look again at verse 10. The Father who dwells in me. This idea of complete unity or mutual indwelling, distinct person, yet one revealed in Christ. So as the Son of God, Jesus is not a lesser God. 
He's not a junior God. He's not JV God. He's the eternally begotten of the Father and thus Son. And in his incarnation, he's submitted to the Father's will. So Jesus does not speak of his own authority. Jesus' works are the Father's doing in him. So both Christ's words and Christ's works affirm his deity, affirm this mutual indwelling. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So we can say with Hosea, let us press on, let us press on to know Christ. To know God as he has revealed himself in Christ. A.W. Tozer famously said, the most important thing about you and about me is what we think about when we think about God. And Jesus here is helping to correct our misthinking. Maybe there's areas where you're tempted to downplay Jesus' deity. Maybe you would never say it, but in your, in your mind. So point number one, Jesus wants Philip, Jesus wants us to see a unity that reveals the Father. A unity that reveals the Father. But next, in verse 11, we have a revelation. Picking up on the word reveal from the first point. Point number two, a revelation that requires belief. Notice Jesus' application here to the disciples in verse 11. Believe me. That I am in the Father and the Father is in me. He says it again. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. Twice he says it. Believe, believe. And then he gives two reasons. He gave them in verse 10. The works and the words. He gives them again. The works and the words. Reasons to believe. Well, it's for his words sake right you see jesus teaching you see jesus living you see jesus walking and you think these are man's words and they couldn't be more so he was fully man he was truly man but that's not all that they were these were the words of god himself in line with the will of god amazing he spoke not of his own authority He spoke according to the eternal counsels of God. He took on flesh, became a man, and as a man, he spoke according to the eternal counsels of God, not his own authority. So believe on account of his words, the authority of Christ's words in the life of his disciples, no less than the very words of God, Jesus being God, but also his works. You see it at the end of verse 10 and then the end of verse 11. So the Father who dwells in me. What a phrase. What a phrase. See at the end of verse 10. But the Father who dwells in me. The inseparable union of the divine and human nature. So earlier in John, John can note he was speaking about the temple of his body. No greater temple. Or Paul can say, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. One author put it this way. The Father so dwells in Christ that in him he may be found as a man where he dwells. You see the picture? What a beautiful picture. If you want to go find Arthur Hazza this week, 
I got his attention. I saw him look out here. If you want to go find Arthur this week, well, you might call him. Let's say he doesn't answer. And then you say, I know where Arthur works. I'm going to go down to the dealership and uh, see if I can find him there. You know, you don't find him there. At some point, if not initially, you're going to go swing by his house. He's probably going to be in the garage, right? He's, he's going to be working on something. Here's the principle. A man can be found where he dwells. Do you want to find the father? Look again at the end of verse 10. The father so dwells in Christ that in Christ the father may be found. You can find the father where he dwells and he dwells in Christ. Then it says he does his works. All these works of power, all these words of mercy. Christ did them and the father did them in him. Again, the mystery of the Trinity. This is how an old creed put it. That we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. So the work of redemption was God's work. There's a profound unity and mutual indwelling between the Father and the Son. Here's the response that's required. That's the emphasis of our second point. Belief. Jesus commands it twice in verse 11. Belief is the response to Christ. How does one respond to Christ? Certainly other things. Repentance. But belief is the response to Jesus. And I want to be clear here this morning that this believe, this believing is not just or just simply acknowledging. I acknowledge that Jesus lived and that he really said these things. I'll acknowledge that. No, 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 no. It isn't simply affirming, right? I agree that what he said is true. I, I, I affirm that he really did die on the cross for sins, that he really did rise on the third day, conquering sin and death. No, believing isn't simply acknowledging or, or even affirming. It's also admitting and accepting. Do you see? It's, it's admitting, I'm a sinner. I need to be rescued. Those were my sins. And it is accepting the free gift of eternal life that he offers. So it's a personal admitting of need, a personal accepting of Christ. So Jesus doesn't come and say to you, man, I want to challenge how you think about me. Not merely. He says, I want to challenge what you do with me. How are you going to respond to me? And he says that to every one of us. Do you disregard him or do you trust him? Do you trust him alone to save you from your sins? Jesus, with the authority of the Father, now commands all men everywhere to believe, to rely on him alone to be their rescuer, to save them from the just wrath of God against them in their sin. This is what Jesus taught back in John 3. Point number one, a unity that reveals the Father. Point number two, a revelation that requires belief. Now, point number three, a belief that brings a greater doing. This is verse 12, a belief that brings a greater doing. John 14, 12, truly, truly, I say to you, 
whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these that I do. Oh, sorry, uh, he will do because I am going to the Father. If you've been reading ahead, maybe you've read this this last week in preparation for today. And you've thought, greater? Greater works? I'm going to like drive to work this week. Greater works? What? What is this? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Greater works? Some have suggested that greater here means more. Right? So we as his disciples in the church age have done more works than Jesus. No doubt, right? 2,000 years, millions of disciples. Some have suggested that greater here means a wider geographical spread, right? So the church is global. So greater works because they're global works. I think these are both true. But is that what Jesus had in mind when he said greater There's a word for more, and there's a word for wider. He said greater. What are we to make of Jesus' words? Notice the end of verse 12. Jesus tied these works explicitly to what? To his departure. So his going to the Father is the reason for the greater works. Well, that's interesting. Look again at verse uh, verse 12. And greater works than these will he do because, that's the reason, because I am going to the Father. Perhaps some light can be found in Jesus' words in Matthew 11.11. Maybe you would jot down that cross-reference. Matthew 11.11, Jesus said this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist... Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Maybe you remember that passage. Jesus says the least citizen in the kingdom is greater than the great John the Baptist. Why? Well, the privilege, it's the privilege of living on the other side of Jesus' finished work. Something John did not do. His completed work brings the privilege, and then the privilege brings the greatness. So back in our passage, I think it's likely that Jesus has this idea of privilege in mind. So the cause of our greater works is his departure, his finished work. You see that at the end of verse 12. So his disciples on the other side of the cross, in the church age, with the Holy Spirit, will have the privilege of doing greater works yet. So Jesus earns the privilege for us. So we, we, you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, by our feeble efforts, we participate in the triumph of Christ and the work of the Spirit as we call sinners to follow the Savior. Amazing. Our privilege is our participation in in the great unfolding of Christ's work of redemption through spirit-empowered proclamation of the good news about Christ. That's the greater works. That's what we find in the book of Acts through the apostles. And it's absolutely amazing. There's no boring days 
when you're a Christian and that's the backdrop for your life. You get to participate in the outworking of Christ's accomplished work by his spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. What a privilege it is to call sinners to their savior. What a privilege it is to see the gospel advance. All because Christ finished his work and so returned to the father. Who does these greater works in verse 12? Look again. Whoever believes in me. Point three was a belief that brings a greater doing. Fourth and finally, a greater doing that is the product of prayer. Huh. I didn't think that Jesus would talk about prayer next if I was just listening, you know, just reading along for the first time. That's surprising to me. A doing that is the product of prayer. So how are the disciples going to enjoy communion with Christ after he's departed? Well, he's going to give a second part to the answer through the helper, through the spirit. But here the first part of the answer is it's by prayer. That's how you will receive his power. Leaving, Jesus tells them how, how they can correspond. He's not going to be there anymore, but they want to stay in touch. It's too casual of a term, isn't it? Much better than a letter that could be lost. The correspondence here is prayer, but it presumes a humility, doesn't it? You got to ask. You got to ask. You don't presume, you ask. You don't delay, you ask. You don't try to do it on your own, you ask. But then notice the freedom he gives. Ask whatever. Or the last verse there, verse 14. Ask anything. Wow. Anything that is good and proper, you ask that. Ask for assistance. Ask for wisdom. Ask for boldness. Ask for comfort, for direction, for humility. Ask for help. Ask for fruit. How are we to ask? Look again at verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. To ask in Jesus' name is to plead, relying on his, his merit, his finished work, and then to rely on his intercession on our behalf. So the finished work of Christ is the grounds for our asking. So in his name praying is dependent on Christ praying. In his name, dependent on him. But it's also to aim with Jesus' aim. Right. You see it there in verse 13, that the father may be glorified in the son. So to ask in Jesus's name is to aim at his glory, to seek his glory as our highest goal in whatever we're asking for. So in his name, praying is dependent on him praying, but in his name, praying is also for his glory praying. What is the success we should anticipate? Man, he says it twice. Verse 13, verse 14, this I will do. I will do it. Here's how one author paraphrased it. You may be sure I will. Not simply that it'll be done. Or that I will see that it is done. Or that I will give orders that it is done. But I will do it. 
Do you see how remarkable that is? Christ assures, I, I, I will do it. What a promise. He doesn't just have the interest, but he has the power. He doesn't just have the desire, but he has the ability. So often we want to help someone and we can't. We want to heal a loved one, but we're helpless. But our intercessor is the sovereign king. And he takes personal responsibility in the answering of our prayers, right? So we trust him, not just our resources, not just his resources, but even his results. So he has the desire, he has the ability, but we also trust his will, how he will answer. I think sometimes we can never say it, but live like Jesus is a vending machine where we go to get what we want sometimes it jams sometimes it doesn't work but we we have this assumption that if we go to him for what we want we'll get what we want but his posture and ours are to be profoundly different than that when we pray this is how another author put it this this was so helpful to me i want to read it it's a few sentences long i'll read it parts of it twice here This is so helpful. What makes prayer Christian and not pagan is that God is not used to fulfill the desires of the person who prays, but rather the person who prays submits his or her will to both the power and purpose of God. Then he notes, a Christian prayer is a paradox in that it seeks from God what one simultaneously surrenders to God. Do you see that? Asking from God, therefore, is also a kind of letting go. It's letting God be God. For him to be God over all things, even the things that I want the most, he is God over those things. The person who prays submits his or her will to both the power and purpose of God. We've seen the purpose What is the purpose that Jesus says there? Why will our prayers be answered according to his will as we ask? Look at verse 13 again. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. This should be our aim in prayer. This should be our aim in asking. And that desire, seeking that, will change. It'll consecrate. It'll purify. It'll make holy what we ask. When the goal is his glory, we'll come to him differently and we'll bring different things in our coming. The glory of the Father is Christ's aim in all that he grants, in all that he answers, in all that he does. So making the Father look glorious is Christ's aim and it will be ours as well as we pray in Christ's name. So prayer makes it clear the greater doing is really his doing through us in response to our asking. Some of you have maybe read devotional literature by E.M. Bounds, letter E, letter M, and then Bounds. He's written tons on prayer. So if you ever want a good quote on prayer, just Google E.M. Bounds on prayer. And there's some real great quotes. I did that. 
in preparation for this. And I found, I found this one. God's acquaintance is not made hurriedly. Do you see what he's saying? God's acquaintance is not made hurriedly. He does not uh, bestow his gifts on the casual or hasty comer and goer. No one can do, note the phrase he uses, a great and enduring work. That's what Jesus is talking about here. No one can do this kind of work for God who is not a man of prayer. And no one can be a man of prayer who does not give much time to praying. So a hurried praying isn't, is like an oxymoron, right? No man can do a great and enduring work for God who is not a man of prayer. And no man can be a man of prayer who does not give much time to praying. So when we talk about the power of prayer, what are we talking about? It's the power of God, right? When we, when we talk about the privilege of prayer... It's a privilege that Christ has secured through his finished work. So our doing is his doing through us. And so dependence on him, relying on him, submitting to his will lie at the heart of Christian discipleship and at the heart of our praying. Jesus has some anxious disciples Some of us still fit the bill now. And he responds with teaching them, gently correcting and instructing them regarding some of the deep things of God. He says, this is what you really need. And what you really need, you already have in spades through Christ. He wants them to see a unity That reveals the father, a revelation that requires belief and a belief that brings a greater doing and a greater doing that is the product of prayer. May that be true for us today. Let me pray in conclusion. Father God, there's some deep, simple truths here that we rush past all too often. We, like the disciples, are so often anxious because we think it's up to us. We feel like we've been left alone. We don't realize the grace that you've given us, that we might know you and see you through Christ, that we might respond in faith and so do a a greater work reliant on you and your word. Father, thank you that you use us. Help us to rely on you. Thank you that your work by your spirit in the church age, drawing sinners to yourself is the backdrop for the mundane things that we'll do this week. This week can be filled with joining you in doing a greater work. And so we pray that our response to that would be the response that Jesus teaches, that we would lean hard and declare our dependence on Christ. Pray in Jesus' name, reliant on him for your glory, trusting your purposes. Would you do all of this for our good and your glory, we pray in Christ's name.
Amen.